BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. And we have a municipal election day coming up this Saturday in the United States. So they're all looking ahead to the first week in November when they have the what's called the midterm elections, meaning halfway through a new presidential term, two years into it. But they elect all sorts of people on election day every year. And this year, though, it is a little bit different. And that has to do with the heightened security around the whole voting process. Joining us now to talk more about that is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what is changing here? It just seems like there's a lot more concern about this process right now. Sure, there is. uh, And this has been ongoing since 2016 uh, and 2020, and it is now continuing into 2022, where election officials have fear that there is going to be some form of security risk to uh, polling stations as we head closer to midterms. Worth pointing out that uh, early voting has already started in some states, so the concerns are present as of right now. But the the, the list of threats is not simply linked to um, the threats of people who are standing in lines or the threats to election workers. There are also ongoing threats, as we've heard recently from the Department of Homeland Security, about foreign adversaries trying to meddle in the elections as well, uh, either with cyber hacks or disinformation. So the United States is really bracing for what could potentially be some form of disruption, be it in person or from behind a close, uh, behind a door. Okay, so how are they compensating for that? So the elections are generally run by each state, right? Like the state officials look after that process. They are run by the state. Now, there was money that was set aside federally from the Department of Homeland Security to allow for states to start to beef up some of the security uh, at their polling sites. Some of that money didn't kind of make it through. Local police stations instead grabbed that money because of, um, you know, bureaucratic and, and red tape issues. But at the end of the day, there is a real, um, you know, effort here by some states, especially the states where things could matter most, where, you know, the, the, the balance could be tipped because of a state like uh, Georgia or a state like Florida or a state like Wisconsin, uh, there are real opportunities here to uh, to be undertaken when it comes to security, like putting bulletproof glass in place, like making walls out of Kevlar, like beefing up actual physical security at uh, election sites because there have been so many threats made against election workers. That costs money. They are understanding that they are going to have to do that. But that kind of shows the, the grim reality as to what you know, used to be this beacon of free and fair elections, there is now this real fear here that something could get in the way of that freeness and that fairness. Okay, this sounds this sounds like almost like you're talking about a different country. This is the United States we're talking about here. And you're talking about security guards and bulletproof glass? Absolutely. Look, not since the 1960s, not since, um, you know, the, the, the civil rights uh, era. Uh, did we see this kind of um, threat or fear against people who were attempting to come in uh, and cast a ballot? And, you know, it's on both sides here. There are Democrats who fear that Republicans are going to get in the way uh, uh, and intimidate voters who are standing in line. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, are investigating uh, more than a thousand uh, incidents of threatening messages being sent to election workers around the United States. Now, 
I think the London numbers are only around 11 percent are actually under a federal investigation because it gets in the way um, of First Amendment speech here. But that goes to show just kind of where the U.S. is and where the U.S. has been headed over the last couple of years amid a growing um, you know, round of, of of false accusations from past presidents and, and members of the Republican Party that elections are rigged. If a Republican doesn't win, therefore the election is rigged. If the Republican does win, then the election went off without a hitch. And that's where some of this concern comes, is that it stems from the people who are being voted in themselves. Right. Okay. Is there any concern that they won't be able to find enough staff to to work as poll workers? That's always uh, a fear. Uh, there are some places like in Philadelphia that are upping the rate uh, for election workers on the day of from something like 125 to $250, uh, hoping that will entice people to come out, especially in um, a tight labor market. So there are uh, efforts underway to try and ensure that there is going to be uh, that there are going to be enough staff members on site. But look, this there is real fear here from election workers, some of them who have said that the, the concerns that they're that they're making or that they're echoing from their their colleagues aren't being listened to and they really fear that something bad is going to have to happen before somebody finally steps up and does something. That's obviously a situation the U.S. doesn't want to find itself in where its election workers are actually being um, physically harmed or potentially worse in order for a change to be made, um, which is why they are kind of stamping their feet down uh, and yelling as loud as they can to say, look, we need to do something to protect us and ultimately to to, to protect this democracy. So is that a big test then, do you think, Reggie? coming up for this particular election day is that it's also a bit of a precursor for 2024. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, this this midterms are, you know, they, they change. They can they can impact the balance of power in Washington. Uh, you know, there are 35 Senate seats that are up for grabs. Something like Georgia could flip this and keep it in the control of Democrats, could keep it in control uh, of Republicans. But there's no president on the ticket. But Trumpism, the former president, is playing a role in the midterms. And that really has put a heightened focus on controversial candidates, on controversial policy platforms. This is all going to potentially become much um, broader in scope in 2024 uh, and whatever plays out, if there is violence, if there is uh, some form of foreign interference, that could potentially grow even worse in 2024 if things aren't dealt with, again, leading to these calls for more security, but also to simply have a better eye on elections. Okay, Reggie, thank you so much for that. Thank you. So Reggie Cicchini, your Global News Washington correspondent. For more on the story, you can check out globalnews.ca where they go into quite a bit of detail about some of these areas. And we're talking, this affects both parties. This is Democratic, you know, states, Republican states, in fact, in Florida and some of even the most conservative counties there. uh, One of the election officials said that they held a three-hour role-playing exercise with local emergency management officials to plan how they're going to potentially respond to violent incidents. Uh, They said they've also gone, like, trained their workers uh, to de-escalate confrontations with anyone that is aggressively questioning their work. They added Kevlar walls to the elections office. They held active shooter training for its workers. They installed bullet and bomb-resistant glass... This is an election office we're talking about here. They invested in security cameras and video file storage. Like this is how they're having to deal with. And again, this is in Florida. I said this is like a very Republican county too, that they're, anybody is dealing with this regardless of party affiliation at this point. And so they are a few weeks away uh, still from election day, but everyone's going to be closely watching that. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the mayoral race. Let's talk about that race happening all over our province because election day is coming up on Saturday. And I'm hoping and encouraging people to get out and vote. We've talked a lot about the civic election campaigns out there. But I think depending on where you live, there's perhaps a different issue top of mind. But what some candidates are also noticing is that there are different issues this time around than they have seen before. And to talk more about that now, we are joined by Merlin Blackwell, the mayoral candidate for Clearwater. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Glad to be on again. Now, I'm fascinated by this because most people think of your municipal government as, you know, deal with my garbage, deal with litter, deal with policing. But what are you hearing this time around? Oh, it's completely changed in the last four years. So it's it's uh, deal with the healthcare shortage, find housing, build housing if you could build housing. We don't have the money for that. Uh, I've gone head to head with uh, Forest Minister Doug Donaldson on provincial issues related to forest tenure transfers, um, being beaten up for a couple of years on uh, uh, health authority responses to COVID because they really don't have a way to message out to small communities effectively. Um, we're in a society created by social media where instant gratification isn't fast enough. And we're really feeling that in local politics right now. Okay. And why do you think that's happening? Then why are people turning to you to say, deal with housing, deal with healthcare? Because we're accessible. It's as simple as that. We are the accessible political body that they can reach. They really don't see us any, as any different or they don't differentiate us between their MLAs and MPs. Um, they figure that if they can talk to us, we can you know, either solve the problem or move it up the chain. And a lot of small town leaders like myself are finding ourselves wading into the trenches of areas that our MP or our MLA would take on normally. Um, and, and it, yeah, it's basically because they can run into us in a small town at the Bilo or at the Tim Hortons and, and have that conversation with us. And, and they expect action pretty much instantly. That is so interesting, though, that you are more, they see you in that role as being able to get more done than their MLA or their MP at this point. Yeah, well, me personally, I'm a little bit loud, but... Um, <laughs> You, you know, I, I get out there and, and, and fight those battles. But really, I mean, healthcare. There, there is no municipal role in healthcare other than advocacy and, and 
for basically, I don't know, a good solid six months publicly and another half a year or a year and a half before that um, on finding doctors uh, and nurses housing on making sure those people are coming to our towns, uh, that recruitment is actually happening. We're doing, we're paying for recruitment out of Clearwater for medical professionals that are employees of the province of British Columbia out of municipal budget because the interior health system and and the bc ministry of health system isn't isn't really effective for recruiting to small towns same issue came up on what forestry um, we had a 10-year transfer so basically the rights to cut trees between two major companies um, and a whole bunch of forestry workers were falling through the gap in the middle while the province dealt with getting that done um, so i was asked to go fight head-to-head with donaldson uh, when he was Minister of Forests, to, to ensure that we could save what jobs we could. Um, and these are the kind of things that are really starting to happen in the last few years, and it's not just me. I'm hearing it from Fernie, I'm hearing it from Barrier on ambulance issues, I'm hearing it from Vanderhoof. It's all across the province. So what do you tell people then who come to you to say, I want you to deal with health care? Do you say, listen, I don't have any power on health care? What do you tell them? No, I, I can't do that. I mean, it's essential. Um, this is stuff that, you know, we have no choice but to get involved in this stuff. Um, if we if we left it to some of the provincial ministries, it's just not going to happen. We're going to be that town that has a hospital that closes all the time. And, you know, we, fortunately, we've had a solid month now where our hospital hasn't closed. And I, I do, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think it's the public pressure that's it's been put on the provincial government, to, you know, at UBCM where I spoke and, and, uh, and, and ever since then to just basically make sure that they that, that we are the squeaky wheel that gets the grease in, in this situation. We, we can. I mean, this is what's important to our towns. If we lose our hospital, we lose our town. If we lose our high school, we lose our town. People here know that they've watched it happen around them. There mm-hmm. is no choice but to get involved. Now, you've been mayor for four years. You are running again this time. So uh-huh. what did you think the job was going to be like? Did you think this is not what I thought it was going to be? <laughs> I was sold a bill of goods. Uh, the, previous, <laughs> the previous mayor said, oh, 16 hours a week max. You're going to read a couple hundred pages every two weeks of agenda. What I ended up with six months in it was a 30 to 50 hour a week job that takes your mind all the time. You are never off duty as mayor. You, are, you go anywhere, you're the mayor. In a small town, there is no anonymity on that. There is no, you know, private places you can go to escape from that. Um, so, you know, and, it, and it's very enjoyable in some aspects. You know, get to solve problems all day. It's my favorite thing in the world to do, to help people. Favorite thing in the world to do. Um, but it is a load. And the yeah. abuse and the pressure, the, the stories I have from other small town mayors and elected officials about abuse, about meddling by corporations in, in local politics. You can read the stories on Squamish on that one. Um, it is it is scary out there in some aspects of this job, for sure. Okay, so what do you think, though, of the level of engagement this time around, though? Do you think I, a lot of people yeah. are invested in coming out to vote? You know what, Simi, uh, if you, those that want to dig into Clearwater and see who I'm running against, we won't get into that here because they don't need the airtime. I'll just let you know that at the advance poll, we nearly doubled, or we out over doubled last year's advance poll, and we almost hit the record for actual votes for the last election at both polls, at the final poll combined. So the the local level of engagement here is extremely 
extremely high. I, I bet you we have an absolute smashing record for voter turnout here just because these issues to do with uh, trucker convoy, dissatisfaction with how the vaccination rolled out, uh, SOGI um, issues and things like that. A lot of stuff that are basically moral and ethical or provincial and federal level issues that are being fought out in the trenches at the local level right now because that is the level of politics that people can access. Wow. Okay. So what do you want people to take away from that? Like we always talk about, oh, we'd like to keep it more respectful. People complain about the level of discourse and what's happened to it. So what do you want people to know? I think it, for a lot of us uh, local elected officials, it's it's an educational role about what we really can and cannot do. And the rest is advocacy. And I think there's a lack of understanding on that. We're here for roads, sewer, water, uh, sports programs, your hockey arena, uh, you know, a little bit of an economic development, but really our biggest thing that we're trying to do is keep the lights on or the roads paved or, or the sewer and water uh, uh, flowing. I mean, as I say to my locals, the sewage lagoon is the pool you need, but maybe not the pool you want. So, you know, these are the things that we deal with. Um, you know, world-class issues like uh, interior health response to uh, communications for vaccination. That really is something that was foisted upon us because the the mechanisms weren't in place. You really have to give us a break on those. Okay, well, nobody said the job was going to be dull, right? Oh, this is definitely not dull. I mean, I could write novels on what's going on here. Well, given this conversation, I look forward to reading that novel. I think you probably have some pretty good stories to tell. I've got some stories. (laughs) Thank Thank you, you, Sibby. Thank you for joining us this morning. That is Merlin Blackwell. He is running for mayor again in Clearwater. He has been mayor for the last four years and has just had to watch particularly small town mayors, smaller communities have to pivot from the issues that they normally deal with to all sorts of stuff that is you would have thought is outside their purview, but we, as you know, the people in those communities are saying we we need some help with this and you're the person that we think needs to help us with this. And you heard the reasons why there. He said he feels that it's because municipal politicians are more approachable, right? You know them. You probably do see them at the grocery store. They are living in your community and therefore you feel like you can go up to them and say, I need some help with, you know, getting litter picked up over here or whatever the case may be. Now, what is the issue that is most important to you where you live? What is the number one thing that you want your mayor and council to deal with in your community? This is Mornings with Simi. We are continuing with our drought conditions. We all thought that maybe Monday would be a bit of a break when we saw, you know, that there was a rain and kind of windstorm moving in. Well, the wind showed up. The rain did not, meaning we're still having a lot of drought conditions, including wildfire problems and more. And then, of course, there is the impact this is having on fish. There are thousands of dead fish. I'm sure you've seen the pictures, too, that have led, you know, have been the direct result of these drought conditions, rivers drying up, creeks drying up. And that is increasingly a concern. We are at level five drought conditions. That is the most severe in the province's classification scale. And that means adverse impacts are certain to happen. And it looks like this is going to continue for the days ahead. Let's talk about the impact this is having. Joining us now is Dr. John S. Richardson, professor at UBC in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences. Dr. Richardson, thank you for being here. Yeah, good morning. So is this something that you've been taking a look at, the studying, the impact of this kind of weather we're having right now? 
Yeah, we're keeping a close eye on it. Um, we really won't know the full repercussions of it until next year, of course, because uh, what's happening right now is a lot of the fish are, are kind of milling around trying to get into the streams. Everybody, I think, saw those pictures that were really highlighted from the uh, central coast. And, and, of course, that's pink salmon. They're kind of crowding in and there's nowhere to go. But a lot of the other salmon right now are kind of milling around at the stream entrances, waiting to move upstream. And uh, at the moment, it's, it's just so shallow that A, they can't move up, and even if they do, they can't get to spawning grounds, and the few that make it there will find that the spawning grounds are really reduced in size because the streams are kind of sinking in to the middle, and there's not very much spawning habitat. So all of those things will lead to A, lower survival, and, and of those that uh, do spawn, uh, they'll have fewer that have surviving eggs. So that's, that's getting to be a big problem for next year's uh, brood. Is that what you thought of? Like, have you seen the pictures then of the dead fish in the creek beds? Well, I've seen the dead fish, and um, as, as one of my colleagues said, that's probably going to be a relatively rare kind of thing by itself. What, what will normally happen is salmon will uh, swim around near the entrance to a stream, um, but while they're doing that, they're using up all their energy. So, of course, salmon, as most of you, most people know, get most of their energy when they're out in the ocean. And when they come into freshwater, they're not eating anymore. And so whatever energy they have when they come back from the ocean is the energy they invest into eggs. And so if they spend weeks and weeks and weeks waiting to go to spawning grounds, they're using up energy all that time, which means that they're either they'll have fewer eggs or the eggs they do have will have less energy stores, so less fat in there. And um, both of those things could lead to lower reproduction. So what are you going to be looking for? You said we won't know the full impact until next year, but what will you be, what are the signs and things that you will be examining? Well, right at the moment, um, most of the people that I know out in the field who uh, have also been looking at this are telling me the salmon just are not coming back to their streams. And usually that just means they're, they're waiting and they can't wait forever. Um, as I say, they're, they're using up energy and eventually they'll just die and fall back and go out to sea. Um, so we're watching to see how many actually make it to the spawning grounds, and um, uh, right at the moment, very few. And so that's kind of concerning for some of the, the streams, uh, sorry, for some of the fish that get to smaller streams. Some of the fish that go to the larger streams, like Chinook, may be less of a problem because there's still fairly uh, large amounts of water and spawning habitat available. But it's really the things like coho, um, some of the things go to smaller streams like chum and um, pink salmon and the other things coming back like steelhead, uh, cutthroat trout, those are the species that we'll watch for and will probably be in, in tough shape. Coho I especially worry about because coho has many populations that are on our list of endangered species in Canada. So many populations have been under pressure for a, a number of decades because of deterioration of their habitats, uh, fishing and all sorts of other pressures that fish face. And with this particular drought, one of the things we worry about is it's so late in the season and, um, and it's also so warm. So with the warm water, A, there's less oxygen, the fish are using up energy faster, and if they can't get to where they need to, then they're just not going to make it at all. Okay, so what about the impact on forests as well? Like, is all of this going to, you think, play a big role in what we see next year over the next year? Yeah, certainly this kind of condition this late in the season will have big impacts on, on trees because, of course, it's still warm. They're still taking up water, and there's not a lot of groundwater for them to tap into. So the water um, in, that's in the streams is a reflection of how much is coming out of the hillsides. And a lot of the trees that are older may be able to reach down to where there's still that last little drop of water, but the young trees and shrubs and things like that 
uh, probably will not survive. So a lot of them uh, would have probably not have roots deep enough to, to get to the bottom and get uh, pull up water out of the ground. So those are the ones that will have the, the biggest impact. So we might miss a whole year class of, of trees. We might kill off trees that are still relatively young, so trees that are less than a couple of years old. And the ones that are out, are out there, they often end up with dead tops because they just can't pump water all the way from the ground to the top if there's not much water to pump. So it does have an impact, and uh, more dead treetops means uh, more potential fire danger. Um, so that will be for next year, and uh, it just means there's a bigger supply of things to burn. Okay, so then, Dr. Richard, have we ever seen conditions like this before when you've studied this? Well, we have to be careful we've, that we've we say we have never seen this. Uh, in terms of Western science records, which go back to about the 1860s, uh, this has been the driest September and the warmest September, uh, both of which lead to high evaporation rates and, um, and the trees are still doing their thing at full speed. Um, and October is turning out to be a record as well. Um, so um, unless we um, have rain pretty soon, and, and none, of the, none of the forecasts really look very promising at the moment. So. Um, we could go through and have one of the driest Octobers on record as well. So, but that's still out of 140 years plus of record. So that's a very long time period to, to set records for. So is it safe to say then this is kind of unprecedented territory? Um, yes. Um, in, in sort of the human history side of things, if we look at the evolutionary history, so these fishes have probably been out there for tens of thousands, millions of years perhaps, and, you know, during their evolutionary history have probably experienced things like this, but we don't know what the repercussions of that were because none of us were there to count the, the outcomes of that. So I'd say it's very much unprecedented, yes. All right, so then what can we what can we do looking ahead to next year? You talked about even with the forest situation, that would be easier to burn. Does that mean that, you know, we could see a worse wildfire season next year? Potentially. Um, it's always really hard to predict, so I don't want to start making predictions about next year at this stage. But, um, yeah, we, as you stress trees out, they become, um, um, there's more dead branches, more dead foliage on them, and they do uh, burn easier. So that might be a, a consequence for next summer. Uh, right at the moment, we, we only have our things on the deficit side of our water balance. So we've got evaporation because it's been warm. We've got lots of transpiration, which is what we call the plants sucking water out of the ground. Um, we have human uses, and so we're using that water supply that's available in reservoirs and streams for drinking and bathing and cooking and, all, and flushing and all sorts of other things. So it's really not a lot we can do um, except on the use side, and so encouraging people to uh, conserve whatever they can by way of water. But we started to see it in places like the Sunshine Coast, where they're pumping water out of lakes. Well, you know, as we pump water out of lakes, we've kind of missed that sort of uh, thinking about the aquatic ecosystems. So we're draining them down, um, and that will compromise things that live in those lakes. So uh, we can find engineering solutions, but it doesn't necessarily um, lead to the best outcomes for the environment. But uh, we, we have to kind of balance human uses and protection of the natural ecosystem. And in most cases, human use will probably trump uh, natural ecosystems. But uh, we have to hope we can find ways past that. All right. Dr. Richardson, thank you for your time. 
Thank you. That's Dr. John S. Richardson, professor at UBC in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences, talking about our drought level five conditions that we have right now in BC, particularly it's the lower mainland, it is Sunshine Coast and the West Vancouver Island areas that are experiencing these conditions. That's the most severe in the province's classification scale. And so there are adverse impacts happening, particularly on salmon, as Dr. Richardson talked about there, and also Because this is going to persist for another couple of weeks, you can bet that we are going to be seeing and feeling the impact of that well into next year, too. This is Mornings with Simi. Has the Okanagan wine industry been our little secret all along? Sure seems that way after hearing that Vogue magazine has now listed the Okanagan as the place to be. They have an article entitled 12 Underrated Wine Regions to Visit This Fall. And yes, there it is. There is the Okanagan. So what does this mean for tourism, for people coming to visit? Well, joining us now is Alan Walker-Matthews, the CEO of the Thompson Okanagan Tourism Association. Alan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. We were pretty excited to see that article come out. I was just going to ask you that too. I was thinking you must be pretty pleased this morning. Yeah, it, we uh, you know, we certainly think we're a fabulous wine region, but it's really nice to have that validated by others, and and to show up in Vogue was just fantastic. So, did you know this was coming? Is this something that they that they let you know they were going to be doing this? I wasn't aware. Uh, there might have been others that, and I, the Travel Penticton may have known. I was not aware that this was about to come out, so it came as a surprise and. Certainly a pleasant one right before Thanksgiving. I'll bet. So what has tourism been like in the area, especially, you know, with the easing of the pandemic restrictions? It's It's been very good. I think people are um, enjoying coming back. We've had this amazing extended fall uh, that everyone is appreciating. And so, you know, again, with the wine region being what it is and our culinary scene being what it is, this has always been a good time of year to visit the region, and certainly we're seeing people come back this year um, in, in stronger numbers. I guess up until now, though, the people that have come to visit or do come to visit the Okanagan, Ellen, are they are they locals? Are they people from BC? Are they people from next door in Alberta? You know, by and large, those are definitely our strongest markets, and they always have in British Columbia. Uh, people draft traveling around in their own province, and certainly our neighbors um, in Alberta. We did see a real spike last year uh, when people couldn't leave the country out of eastern Canada. Toronto and and um, Montreal came here in, in greater numbers than we've seen in the past, and really was am- were amazed by what we had in terms of the wine region here in this country. Okay, so then my question, Alan, is do we have room for more people to show up? Like, what is this going to mean for the tourism industry? I think we certainly have capacity in the falls, absolutely, and the spring. And I, and that's really the best time to come wine touring. So at this point, we, we would love to see more people come at that time of year. And, and uh, there is lots of capacity. Right, but what about the summer? Like, you, you mentioned the fall and the <laughs> spring. What about the summer? You know, the summer has always been the time of year that, that really takes care of itself. It is... It, but it's also more family-oriented. Um, and yes, the wineries are well-visited then, then too. But I think the fall wine season with harvest and all of the things that attract people here for, for the wine region um, happen in the fall. What makes that area, do you think, so unique? Or what, why do you think it has been underrated until now? Well, I think one of the things the article referenced, and it's true, is that you know the amount of wine that we're able to produce, because we're still relatively small landmass, of growing area, um, we don't export a, a lot of wine the way other regions do. You know, we have, we probably have the same size in acres of, of uh, vineyards as 
some vineyards individually do in other countries. So most of the wine is consumed here or relatively close to here, as opposed to being shipped all over the world. And that's made it more of a secret, but it also makes a special place to travel to. So do you think this will also um, spur like people being interested in saying, hey, I'd like to have that Okanagan wine shipped to me? And is that possible? Uh, that's still something that is a challenge. I, that's an ongoing discussion. Uh, but, you you know, it also spurs the conversation of, I'm going to go to that region and check it out. And I think, you know, from a tourism perspective, we really like, we really like those visits. Right. So from a tourism perspective, though, what does the area need to work on to be able to attract more tourism, do you think? I think getting the word out. I think having articles like this and, and media coming into the region at this time of year and in the spring to see what is here, what is different. One of the things that makes us unique is Okanagan Lake. Uh, that many wine regions are spectacular, and not everybody has this amazing um, body of water that you can sit in wineries and look out at the lake and, and look out at the scenery, and it's world class, absolutely. Okay, so you're saying, should we rush there now, Ellen? Like, do you think there's going to be a rush once people start reading this article? I, I don't think that's quite how it works, <laughs> but I think it, it's certainly, over time, it's becoming more and more popular. We've seen that over the last 10 years even, and we've seen it extend. In 2019, before COVID, we saw wine touring really go right into November, um, and that was a thrill to see people here, you know, at what we would call a, a real soft part of our year. Right, and as you pointed out, though, the weather right now is lending itself to a pretty good fall for you guys too, isn't it? It is. The colors are, are amazing. Uh, the, the warm weather just continues. Um, it feels like the beginning of fall, not you know, three quarters of the way through or almost over. All right. Well, people should come and visit. Where can people find out more information? Um, you can certainly go to our website, uh, Thompson Okanagan or TotaBC.com uh, or any of the regional websites. Uh, any of our communities have fantastic websites uh, that will give you lots of information about places to go and wineries to visit. And certainly Wines of BC has another great website. So, Lots of locations to, to check out. And Destination BC has their Hello BC pages as well. So really, you can go just about anywhere or Google, you know, Finds of the Okanagan, and I'm sure you'll find lots of great of websites. Stuff. Yeah, a ton of yeah. stuff out there. All right, Ellen, thank you so much. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. So what finally did it after weeks and months of controversy surrounding Hockey Canada and continually they were telling everybody that, no, no, we're good, we get it, our current leadership is fine, we're going to make this work. Well, things dramatically changed this morning, perhaps not coincidentally, right after major sponsor Bauer said they were done and they were no longer going to provide free equipment to the men's team either. Suddenly, statement comes out from Hockey Canada saying their CEO, along with the complete board of directors, are all stepping aside. Let's talk about this. Look at an update now from Ian Mendez, senior writer for The Athletic, who has been extensively covering the story. Ian, we talked to you a week ago. We didn't think anything was going to change. And look at this. What happened? What did we say, Simi, last week? We said, just just give it a week and there's always a new element to this story. And, uh, you know, I, I think... It's a combination of surprise and it, it's weird. It's weird to feel surprised and not surprised at the same time, but that's how I feel. I feel like this felt inevitable, but it also felt like they were so resistant to change that we would never see this. So, uh, you know, to, to get that email just after 11 Eastern uh, time, uh, you know, from Hockey Canada saying we have overhauled our leadership team. Um, 
it's it's you know it's it's shocking. It's not surprising, but it it, it clearly shows that at some point they realize uh, we're not winning. Yeah. There's no there's no PR strategy on the planet that was going to get us out of this uh, particular jam. So, Ian, what do you think it was that finally did it? Because a week ago in front of legislators, in front of that House of Commons Heritage Committee, they were adamant that, no, no, they were the ones that were going, they were going to fix this. It was fine. And we heard other sponsors leaving over the course of the last week. But then this morning, we heard that Bauer, one of their major sponsors and their equipment sponsor, said, you know what, we've met with them and we didn't like what we heard. So we're pulling out of help of sponsoring and providing equipment to the men's team. Do you think that was the final straw? I don't. I, you know, I think that's more coincidental than anything else. Look, uh, October the 4th, so exactly a week ago, Andrea Skinner, who was at the time uh, the, the chairperson of the board of directors, um, sat there through a, a parliamentary committee hearing. And I think that those answers that she gave, which we should point out, those were, that was a calculated strategy from Andrea Skinner. Like, let's not uh, trick, uh, you know, uh, fool ourselves here. That was testimony she gave that she would have been well coached and well, exactly. uh, you know, educated that, yeah. on how to answer those questions. So that was their strategy. And when the fallout, it's no coincidence that within hours of that, Hockey Quebec said we're pulling out uh, a major, uh, you know, uh, line of sponsors said we're out. Canadian Tire said not only are we out now, we're not hitting pause, we're canceling this relationship, period. So I think it was kind of a slow burn, to be honest with you, Simi. And then Andrea Skinner announced on Saturday. And I, I, I thought to myself, my goodness gracious, it's a long weekend in this country uh, to have the news come out that the person who provided this testimony on Tuesday is resigning on Saturday. I thought I, I wouldn't be shocked if, if they announced that there's a complete leadership overhaul. Like the time to do it was Thanksgiving weekend. I thought maybe on Friday we'd see it. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that the, the Bauer thing today had anything to do with it. I think it was just really a compilation of everything we've seen in the past five or six days, combined with the clear outrage from the, the, the general public in Canada, who has clearly lost faith in the direction of this organization. It is amazing that it took so long. Do you think the Hockey Federation saying that we're not going to send any more money, do you think that also had something to do with it? Yeah, I think so. I think so for sure. Like, I think... If you go back to the summertime, that wasn't something that happened, right? Like, I think in the summertime, the, the biggest thing we saw was all the, the sponsors, the, the Tim Hortons and the Nikes and the Canadian Tires, Telus, they all said, hey, we're pressing pause until we see meaningful change. But we never really heard from the provincial associations. They were always like, hey, we're monitoring things. And, and <laughs> excuse me, so once, you know, once we saw provincial organizations saying, hey, we're going to withhold the, the you know, the $3 sum, uh, you know, whatever it was based on the, the, the particular provincial organization. You know, on it was a combination. I think it's certainly symbolic, but it's also significant. Like, uh, you know, provincial bodies saying, we don't have the faith in you to run this uh, was, was really telling. So I do think, you know, if you were trying to look at this as like a pie chart, for example, for the listeners, I think it would be like kind of 40, 50 percent uh, would be, uh, you know, the provincial organizations backing out, you know, maybe 40 percent or whatever is the sponsors. And then the, the remainder is the general public and the absolute hammering that's gone on. Look, they, to our understanding, they've hired a pretty slick Toronto PR firm uh, called Navigator to kind of help them, uh, you know, um, I guess navigate would be the word uh, through this crisis. 
if if they can't get out of this mess with one of the best public relations firms, crisis management firms in Canada, I think it speaks pretty loudly to the fact that they weren't coming back from this with the current iteration of, of management. Okay, so then now what happens? I mean, now you've got a new board of directors that would be coming in, right? And I guess they what they're saying is they want to see other people, like people need to throw their names in for this. Yeah, so I think it's December 17th, if I'm not mistaken. So middle of December, uh, look, they said, look, we need new leadership, new perspective. So middle of December is when there's going to have this election for the new board members. And basically, the, the Hockey Canada has put this out today. Hey, we are looking for candidates to come and shape the future of the organization. We encourage anybody who's qualified uh, to respond to this. So I'm, I'm thinking, look, you've got to be somebody who's been involved in hockey in some way, shape, or form, grassroots level, minor hockey, that type of thing. If you feel, if you're a listener and you feel like, hey, you know what? I am qualified for this. I have coached my daughter or my son in hockey, or I've been an executive in hockey for 10, 15, 20 years, and I can, you know, look, you can absolutely do it in British Columbia, and, and, and they're looking for, I think, a good representation across the country. So uh, middle of December would be the, the date for that, but they still have to find now um, – a new CEO. So this is all going to be basically run by an interim management committee. And now the question will be, well, who's on this interim management committee and what are their goals and what's their background? Uh, but really, I would say that this is going to be a three, four month process uh, to really put this, this thing in place. Don't, don't expect anything big in the next few weeks. Is this good news for parents out there? Do you think anybody who plays and pays dues to Hockey Canada? Well, I don't think it's going to change your day-to-day uh, you know, if you've been, you know, taking your kid to play in, in, you know, Richmond or Burnaby or whatever, you haven't noticed a change, right? Like you, you've gone to practices, everything's been the same. The difference, though, will be, I think, uh, parents just want to know where their money's going. And I think that the, the biggest piece of disappointing news to come out of all of this is that there was a fund in which a portion of your registration fees for your child uh, would go to pay off uh, some of these uh, uh, assault and abuse claims. And, and, and I don't think that that's what they wanted. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, parents feel better about putting their kids into hockey and, and, and you know, and, and, and supporting Hockey Canada. But I don't think anything really changed. I, I thought it was kind of laughable even when Andrea Skinner said last week, well, I don't know if we change everything, will the lights stay on? No, the lights will stay on in the arenas. That was right. never going to be an issue uh, for, for, for minor hockey players. I also feel like that was a bit of a breaking point. Like that, the absurdity of that statement, for, it resonated with Canadians. It resonated with the average Canadian saying, what is she talking about? Like, of course the lights are going to stay on at the rink if she's not there. Well, you never want to be, um, you know, any comment that you make as an official, you never want to be turned into a meme. Andrea Skinner, unfortunately, got memed last week, right? Like that comment True. of who will keep the lights on? Will this, like, that just, I think it was so ridiculous to, to assert that these people who wear suits and, and, you know, are at the highest levels of Hockey Canada, that them stepping aside would have any impact on your child playing hockey at a rink at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning, I think was truly, it was, it felt like it was a complete breaking point. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that that testimony happened on Tuesday, and now here we are a week later and things have completely blown up. I think you're absolutely right. Ian, thanks again for this. Yeah. 
Appreciate your time. That's Ian Mendez, senior writer for The Athletic. You can check it out at theathletic.com. They do great work there. Well worth the subscription. Talking about Hockey Canada developments this morning that about half an hour or so ago, they put out a statement saying that effective immediately, it's the departure of the CEO, Scott Smith, and the entire board has also agreed to step down to make room for a new slate of directors. They've got an interim management committee that will be put in place. These are major changes, things that this Ian points out they were unwilling to do just a week ago, and now things are going to change. The question is, will it be enough to convince people, Canadians, you out there, that, all right, I think they got the message. They got the message that we want things to change. We'll see about that. There's more to come on that for sure. This is Mornings with Simi.
This is Mornings with Simi. 